0: Welcome back to Love Life and Legacy B podcast dedicated to helping you navigate these hypersexualized times of ours. And in today's episode, everybody, I just have to say this is a labor of love, this episode. And let me tell you why. Over the course of the past possibly 10 plus months, I've been having back and forth conversations with none other than our previous guest, Philip Schenker, who just knows a lot. He's on the front line of helping people heal from trauma. But more than that, he's such a great communicator. He's got a gift for the gab. If you've ever seen him give a lecture, but for every one point within a lecture, he gives a thousand references. He has so much depth and wisdom that he can add to a conversation. And so for the past 10 plus months, we've been trying to narrow down what exactly he can talk about on this podcast and there's a lot of back and forth i'm talking emails whatsapp messages a lot of voice messages on whatsapp just a lot of communication that's my kind of linguistic style is communicating verbally and him as well we just love talking so he put together a series of talks just recorded for us and they're about attachment style now sometimes when people hear psychological terms or terms that you might read in psychology today or something, it's easy to kind of zone out and say, yeah, that's just a bunch of mumbo jumbo. This episode, if you listen to it, I guarantee you will clarify so much about your own personal journey, why you do the things that you do, why you surround yourself with the friends that you have and why you interact with your family in a certain way, why you choose spouses or don't choose spouses, why you hesitate, why you get angry. Like, basically, it's like peeling back the layers of yourself so that you can see this little person who's been pulling the strings of your life without you even knowing. Just like in The Wizard of Oz, there's a man behind the curtain. Well, guess what? This is your little person behind the curtain, okay? And if you can understand this, you'll be able to navigate so much more seamlessly within your own life. Things will make a lot more sense. And because of the amount of information that he communicated, I'm going to break this up into two episodes. First one is much more about the trauma and what it did to us as little kids. And we're going to start to get into, by the end of this episode, what that looks like today. When we were dealing with certain traumas when we were kids, how that manifests in her life today. Please listen to this at least ten thousand times, so that you can get amazing at life. Okay. So without further ado, let's get into this episode starring Philip Shanker, the master of ceremonies for today.
1: In the history of rock and roll and pop music, there have been so many songs written where somebody falls in love or gets attracted to someone who's bad for them and they can't see it. Love seems to be blind and their friends try to dissuade them. The Beatles song I remember, she's got the devil in her heart. No, 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 this I can't believe. It's a conversation. His friends are trying to convince him, stay away from her, she's bad for you. Another phrase I remember is, my friends tell me he's no good for me. Have you ever watched somebody being attracted to somebody that you knew was not a good person or you felt there was something going on and your loved one or friend was blind like a moth to a flame? Why is it that love seems to be so blind? Even more, why is it that so-called good girls are attracted to so-called bad boys so many times? Why is it that nice boys are so often attracted to heartbreakers, to controlling, demanding people who take advantage of them. We seem to see that kind of paradigm all the time. And why is it that the things that used to frustrate us about our parents growing up, the things we said, I'm never going to do that to my children. And then you grow up and you have children and you find yourself doing the very same things, repeating the same patterns. And speaking of repeated patterns, Why is it that in love and romantic relationships, we are so often attracted to the same type over and over again, and even when one relationship ends, the next one seems to conform to the same pattern over and over relationship after relationship? Well, attachment theory, which is one of the most significant developments in the history of psychology, psychotherapy, has a lot to say about questions like these and also has a lot to say about issues like mental health, anxiety, depression, ADHD. Are these all just brain-based and genetic given to us by our ancestors and all we can do is take medication? Or are there emotional roots and reasons, attachment wounds that underlie these psychological struggles? And what about the relationship between our emotions and our physical health? Well. Attachment theory has a lot to say about all of these, as well as compulsive behaviors, addictions, and much more. So my hope is that we can get some insight and go deep into some of these questions today.
0: I just wanted to chime in and say, what an intro. He has a gift for setting things up. So let's get into it. Section one.
1: Early psychology and psychotherapy developed from the theories of people like Sigmund Freud or Carl Jung. And it was a little more remote and symbolic, focused on the subconscious and dreams and the id and the ego and the superego, fantasy life, sexuality, and often it was utilized in addressing serious or severe mental health issues. So kind of a stigma developed that psychology, psychotherapy is only for the weak, the wounded, the broken, the crazy. The average person thought, I don't need that kind of, you know, I'm living my life fine. Everything's going well. Even today, couples typically seek couples therapy only when there is a crisis or breakdown. And usually, it's when at least one of them, sometimes both, are finished with the relationship. They want out. And individuals seem to look for therapy only when they can't move their lives forward anymore. Their emotional disturbance or Mental health issues like anxiety, depression, panic attacks, or an addictive or compulsive distraction make their lives unlivable and frustrate the things they're trying to accomplish. Only then do they seek help. But if you look carefully, more and more psychology, psychotherapy, is becoming more popularized, generalized, and associated with things like spirituality, mindfulness, an understanding of how to grow as a person, not just heal a wound or solve a problem, but how to live a healthy emotional life. Now, today, pretty much any psychological understanding or theory is based on the understanding that our childhood experiences, whether loving or wounded or traumatic, will impact and shape our relationships and experiences in adulthood. Now, one of the big reasons for this understanding is the contribution of attachment theory, and that's actually the essential point. Attachment theory was developed in the 1950s by a British psychoanalyst named John Bowlby, and he was assisted by researchers like Mary Ainsworth and others. It was a theory of human development based on observing young children, recognizing that based upon the quality of a child's relationship with its caregiver, primary caregiver, usually mom, right, that that would affect that child's sense of security, of confidence, of anxiety or openness, that in order for a child to live a healthy emotional life and to develop socially, he or she would need to establish at least a relationship with at least one primary caregiver. Attachment theory was also grounded in an evolutionary understanding, understanding that human beings, like other social primates, are social beings and our relationships are essential to us. So, what is attachment? How is it defined and why is it important? The essential idea is the importance. Attachment refers to the importance of an offspring's proximity to and bonding with caregivers, protectors, and it's essential to the survival of the offspring. Now, looking at evolution, whether you look at evolution as a random process by mutation or an intelligent, driven, purposeful process, as I do, well, all the way up to reptiles, attachment, and the protection of caregivers is not an issue. It's not a factor. Your average lizard, fish, or turtle Will lay multiple, dozens, hundreds, even thousands, of eggs, and then the parent skips town. He's gone, has nothing to do with protecting or raising the offspring. A turtle will lay a hundred eggs on a beach, bury them in the sand, and then swim away. And 98 of those eggs will be eaten by predators to survive, make it back to the ocean. And that is how that species develops. But once you reach higher creatures birds mammals and especially social mammals primates etc all of a sudden you see love you see bonding you see parents sacrificing themselves to protect or make sure of the survival of their children you see this quality of parenting even father moon said he learned his lessons of love by watching the cows on his farm or the magpies in the trees protecting their chicks and eggs when he would climb the tree. And when we look at human beings, we have the longest period of attachment, of dependence on our caregivers of any species that we're aware of. A horse is born and is walking within three hours, but babies are born super vulnerable and dependent, And that lasts for what? 15 years at the minimum. So this long period of attachment, relationship, nurturing, caregiving, bonding is fundamental to who we are as social beings, who we are as human beings. And the point of attachment is that without it, offspring won't survive. Without being close to the parents, protected by the parents, bonded with the parents, can't survive. Without attachment, no survival. Now, Mary Ainsworth did a ton of studies with putting children in strange situations, being in a room that they're not familiar with. How will they react if mom leaves the room? Well, it will depend on how secure that child is with mom in the first place. How will they react to strangers? How will they react when mom leaves the room and a stranger stays and tries to interact with them? And all of these things were observed to understand different attachment styles that seem to be directly connected with the degree of security and connection between child and parent. And of all the experiments that were done, a later experiment in the 1970s, I would recommend all of your listeners to go and get the two-and-a-half or three-minute video of the still-face experiment. This was much later, run by Professor Edward Tronick from Harvard University. In it, he would have mothers. They later did it with dads as well. But he would have mothers be with their child in a room, a one or two-year-old child, and they would be interacting with the child, making faces, responding, laughing, giggling, cooing back and forth. Just you could see the delight in the child's face. And then Dr. Tronick instructed the mothers to just stop responding, just become still, make the face completely still, no emotional or physical response at all. And you can just watch in less than two minutes. The response of those children was every kind of coping mechanism you could ever believe could happen for young people growing up. First, they try to be cute and funny. They try to be a pleaser, to get attention, to draw their parents' attention back. Then they get a little nervous and unsure what's going on. And then when it gets more and more difficult and they get louder and stronger and there's no response, then they turn away and reject and withdraw themselves and protect themselves from like, I don't need you anymore. You can almost see it there. And then they start to get frantic and emotional and cry and get out of control and dysregulated. So imagine if someone would have those experiences growing up in a home with little response or a scary or negative or unhealthy response. That's the essence of attachment theory and understanding how that impacts us later in life. Now, in the unification tradition and teaching is a beautiful theory that contributes to the understanding of attachment theory, and that is the four realms of heart. And when you look at it as a developmental model, it talks about the development of the human being's capacity to love from birth when essentially human beings are completely narcissistic. That's true, not just selfish. Actually, we now know that when a baby's born, he or she thinks everything is me. There's no consciousness of other. Everything is me. Now, you can't get more narcissistic than that, right? And then what is life but a journey of expanding our capacity of heart in order to grow our capacity to love? First by being loved by parents. That's the first realm of the heart, children's love. Then learning to give as well as receive. That's the sibling realm of heart. And then learning how to love exclusively and go deep and create something unique and safe and trusting and special in conjugal love. And ultimately that leads us to be parents where we actually learn to love like God as we understand God unselfishly unconditionally and sacrificially. And I will tell you, as a parent and grandparent, there is no other relationship like that where someone is born and enters your life that is de facto more important than you. You can try to be that way with your spouse. You can try to be that way with others, but your children become more important. And even if you do a bad job, but that is the meaning of that relationship and how powerful it is. But what I wanna draw your attention to in relationship with attachment theory is that first realm of the heart. What is the importance of the children's experience of love? It's not children's love, it's the love of parents that they need to experience. A love that is unconditional, that is complete, that's protective and nurturing and safe. And it's the foundation of a child's sense of self-identity Self worth, value, confidence, creativity, the willingness to explore. That early foundation of love from parents is the foundation of self love. We've all heard that pop culture expression you can't love others unless you can learn to love yourself, right? But actually, it's completely true. We can only love others to the extent we have the capacity to love ourselves. And actually, Jesus said that himself. He said the entire law and commandments, that's the whole Old Testament, the entire law and prophets hang on two commandments. And then he actually gave three. The first, he said, is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Then he said the second is like the first, meaning you can't love God whom you can't see, which Paul said, Jesus said in other places. How can you say you love God whom you can't see if you can't love the person? in front of you. So, he said, learning to love God is about loving your neighbor as yourself. Aha, there's the third commandment. You can only love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you feel critical and hate and unhappy with who you are, that's going to bleed out in your relationships with other people. If you're compassionate and understanding toward yourself, you'll be that way toward others. So, Self-love is foundational to love others. But self-love is not about taking me time and spa days, right? Where do we develop our sense of self-identity and self-worth? It's in the unconditional love and acceptance of others. It's being loved for who you are, not for what you do. That's the experience of that first realm of the heart. And that, as attachment theory says, those pre-adolescent vulnerable attachment experiences shape our attachment experiences later in life. The problem is that parents express conditional love without any intention to do so. We can't help it. When my kids are great and bring home good grades and are performing well and obeying what I'm asking them to do, oh, I love them and want to be around. them. But when kids are difficult, going through tough times, we often will feel upset or angry or punished or in a way that makes them feel when I'm good, I'm loved, and when I'm not, otherwise. And there's so many things that distract us and often communicate that other things are more important than our children. Now, attachment theory observed basic attachment styles, and originally there were only three, okay? The first, the ideal, was a secure attachment style, meaning that the child felt comfortable, connected, loved, validated, safe, and bonded with their parent. But a large number of the children observed had an anxious attachment style. They felt insecure. They would be easily upset if parents moved farther away from them. They would fear abandonment and feel alone very easy and be very clingy. And then the third was an avoidant attachment style where a child would withdraw if parents left and came back and the child felt hurt. The child would act as if the parent wasn't important, would turn its back and try to affirm the fact, I don't need you, right? I'm going to be on my own. That's an avoidant attachment style. And later, when children showed a combination of these, it was called an ambivalent or confused attachment style. Now, there have been a lot of developments, a lot of theories, but these basic ideas were where it began. But the key point here is the understanding that based upon our childhood experience, during that vulnerable and dependent period of preadolescence and the attachment style that we developed, we bring that style into our adult relationships and experiences. Hey everybody,
0: how was that? That's not the end by any stretch. This is kind of like a break, it's like an intermission. Long time ago movies used to be so long that they'd have intermissions, and it's just so you could go out, get some popcorn, take a pee, get back and so For this, I invite you to do the same. This is really dense information, and it requires your attention in order to really get it. And if you get it, I'm telling you, it will help you tremendously in your life. So, take a break, do whatever you need to do, and then when we get back in, we're going to get into attachment wounding, what happens when things don't go exactly according to plan, as is the case with basically everybody who's ever existed. So, let's get into section two.
1: It's important to recognize that even in the most loving, harmonious, happy, and faithful families, we all experience some degree of attachment wounding because no parents are perfect. Nobody gave parents a manual how to raise their kids. And parents, we all bring our own emotional immaturity, unmet needs, coping mechanisms into our marriage and parenting. And that affects all of the family relationships and dynamic. Now, attachment wounds can be divided into two essential categories. The first being the wounds of lack of attachment, a detached experience, feeling unloved, feeling neglected, feeling even abandoned. The second area is the area of unhealthy attachment, relationships that are scary, unstable, overwhelming, too close angry, critical, difficult, and the child is destabilized and unsure of the situation or needs to protect him or herself. Let's look at these two areas in terms of lack of attachment, this feeling of neglect or abandonment. An obvious example of how that would occur is if parents are overwhelmed by a newborn child. They don't have the money, they're poor, they're drug addicted, whatever. And so the parents put the baby in a basket and leave the basket in front of the fire station. Now, that child is going to have a traumatic experience from the abandonment of its parents. But this can also happen when a parent dies and a child is young. Why did mom and dad leave? And the child will take it personally and also perhaps feel responsible for the death itself. This can also be in a situation of divorce or when a single parent is working as hard as they can, raising their children on their own, trying to fulfill both roles, The child bonds with the parent that's in the home and is detached from the parent that's far away from their life. This can also be when a parent is unavailable physically or emotionally. Physically, if dad has a job where he's always traveling, if mom is always busy at the church, it can be emotionally. A parent that comes home every night but is too tired to play, to connect, or is emotionally isolated or withdrawn. Maybe dad Grew up without connecting with his dad. And the way he dealt with it was to withdraw or protect his emotional life. And so he doesn't know how to give his emotions to his kids because he never learned how. So these are some basic examples of lack of attachment. Now, what about unhealthy attachment? Obvious examples would be any form of abusive relationship, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, or of course, sexual abuse. These are traumatic and impact a child for the rest of their lives. But this can also be when a parent is angry all the time or overly critical, overly demanding, never satisfied, very controlling or authoritarian, my way or the highway, doesn't know how to listen to kids. This can also happen if, say, mom is great at parenting when kids are young because they need a manager. Here's the clothes you'll wear. Here's the schedule you have. Let's get your school supplies. Let's go to the car now. But when a child becomes an adolescent and needs a little bit more space, freedom, responsibility, creativity, trust, encouragement, mentoring, maybe mom can't shift into that and still tries to run the show of their sons or daughters. Right. These are the kinds of things that would lead to that unhealthy feeling of attachment. Or this can be an immature parent who has so many insecurities and reactivities and emotional needs that they can't help laying those needs on their children or putting their unhappiness or guilt or unhappy feeling in front of their kids constantly, making the kids feel responsible for the emotions of their parents. And the child will grow up enmeshed not knowing where he or she ends and mom or dad begins. So these are examples of these two major categories. There's another factor here that's super important because besides attachment, as pointed out by the great addiction specialist, trauma therapist and medical doctor, Gabor Mate from Canada, we have a second essential need for survival. Our ancestors, besides attachment, being close and protected, by our caregivers, being bonded with them, not being distant, disconnected. We had a second one, which was being in touch with our gut feelings, our instinct, our intuition, knowing if we're out alone in nature, knowing what's happening, recognizing, being able to trust and move according to our instinctive feelings. Dr. Mate referred to that as authenticity from an emotional standpoint, from a developmental standpoint, children need to also know who they are and develop a sense of their own identity and authenticity. But what happens when our need for authenticity, to be ourselves, is in conflict with the need to be attached and be approved and be supported by parents? For example, When a child hits the terrible twos, two to three years old, and needs to assert independence, needs to discover that I am not you. I have my own identity. This is an important developmental stage. But to do that, the child will be saying, no, 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 I won't, I can't. And testing limits and rebelling. What if parents can't handle that? What if they can't handle the rebellion? What if they can't handle the no? What if they lose patience and start to punish Then the child will learn that in order for me not to be alienated from my parents, I need to do what they want. I need to do what they say. And the child will choose attachment, according to Dr. Mate, every single time. What happens when a kid 15 minutes before dinner wants to have a cookie and he goes to mom and mom says, sorry, we're about to eat. You can have the cookie after dinner. And the kid gets mad. Is there anything wrong or evil or bad about the child getting upset because he doesn't get his way? It's part of his own development. What if mom is freaked out and punishes him in his room and doesn't give him dinner or overreacts? I think we've all seen in public sometimes situations where a child seems to be just excited or playful or just being a kid and you see an angry or stressed or overwhelmed Struggling parent react in a very bad way, and it's cringe-worthy to see that happen. You don't think that that child will internalize something from those experiences. So attachment always wins, and so many of us growing up, will lose connection with our authentic self, and we become what we think people want us to be, or we protect what we think nobody can love or accept, and we negotiate our way in the world that way. And so we grow up not knowing who we are. This can happen as well. So besides attachment wounds in relationships, I want to talk a little bit about the role of inherited trauma. In the book of Exodus, in the Bible, it says, the sins of the fathers are visited upon the children to the third and fourth generations. Now, this doesn't mean curses that were given because our ancestors committed sins or punishments for their mistakes. It means unresolved stuff. Remains there, like a debt that hasn't been paid. Any unificationist is familiar with that concept. It also means unresolved trauma. And wouldn't you know, for the last 50 years, a new branch of science called epigenetics has developed to actually prove that trauma passes from generation to generation, that we can pass on predispositions to things that we couldn't overcome, that the way we lead our lives impacts our children. Whoa. What a powerful statement. But here's the simplest example, simplest explanation of epigenetics that I've come across. When we're born, every single cell in our body and every single cell that ever develops throughout our life has the same DNA, the same chromosomes, the same genes in the same order, every single cell. And it's those genes that give instructions to the cell for growth, development, and building. Well, then how come some cells develop into bone? And other cells with the same set of genes, getting instructions from those genes, develop into muscle or organ or nerve or something else, epithelial cells, whatever, blood. Why all the difference if they have the same genes? Because genes can upregulate or downregulate, meaning they can turn on and be active or they can turn off and be dormant. And that's true of more than 90% of our genes. And now we've come to learn what epigenetics shows is that our genes can be upregulated or downregulated, turned on or off by our emotions, by the environment we're in, by the people we hang around with, by the quality of our lives. For example, high degree of stress turns on a gene that produces stomach acid and you start to get stomach acid. Genes are absolutely active with all of our other bodily systems. So that means that what you inherited from your parents and what you're going to pass on to your kids is not just some hardwired toolkit of genes. Okay, you're going to have blue eyes. Every third kid is going to have this. You're going to have these traits, these care It's not just a static kit, but we pass on a recipe of the life we lived based on our genetic expression. So that's a powerful understanding that the things we deal with in life, predispositions, you can pass on a predisposition to alcoholism and your descendants will struggle with that more. There are predispositions to sexual attractions and things like that based upon our life experience. So, this is a powerful understanding and it's a new branch of science, but it's something that any unificationist should be able to understand. So, you can see generational patterns that run in families, you can see inherited patterns. For example, a young man disconnected from his dad. I've often found that the dad was disconnected from his dad and the grandfather wasn't even there or was violent or a difficult man. You know, you can see patterns that go on. Sexual abuse seems to run generationally in families, sometimes divorce. So I've found situations where all the women had their relationships break down and were all divorced in a single family. And it can be either all kinds of things. Okay. So there are Inherited predispositional traumatic situations, some of the stuff you're dealing with in your life, the real tough stuff may not be from your 30 years of life. You may be carrying the water for things that have been that are generations deep. That's an important understanding. And let me say another word about intrauterine or prenatal experiences. Babies recognize mom's voice during the fifth month, they can already see light and are sensitive. Their eyes are already working at that time. They can recognize dad's voice a few weeks later. And we know that babies feel what mom feels. If she feels stressed or depressed, if she's anxious about money, if they're about to foreclose on the house, if she doesn't know where they're going to live, if they didn't plan for the baby, whatever situation, the child will feel those feelings as its own feelings. And this is not just some emotional vibe that the baby feels, but emotions produce neuropeptides, neurotransmitters. These are hormones, chemicals. Every emotion produces a neurotransmitter, like stress produces cortisol and adrenaline. And these neuropeptides cross the placenta and enter the bloodstream of a baby. Also, some studies have shown that when mothers are overstressed or overwhelmed, their circulation gets constricted and tight, and across the placenta, there won't be enough nourishment. Now, can you imagine a baby in the womb feeling again and again and again, not getting enough nourishment? Could that create some kind of predisposition? Can there be predilections or predispositions to the feeling of not being wanted or rejected? Of course, there's all kinds of emotional wounds that can happen, even prenatally. So these are important things to understand.
0: Hey, if you're getting something good from this episode, you will probably really enjoy our other podcast, The Blessed Couple Podcast, where we talk about how to create a smashing marriage and experience God in the process. And yes, we talk a lot about sex. We have incredible guest speakers that I think you're gonna really love. All you have to do is search for Blessed Couple Podcast on your favorite podcast player, or just click the link in the description of this episode. Thanks, back to the show.
1: But before we move forward let me say a word about stress and resiliency why is it that some are destroyed by a traumatic experience and others from the same traumatic experience will emerge as champions heroes they'll give speeches and they'll write books and they'll be models for others for some victor frankl wrote how the experience of the holocaust and concentration camp just destroyed some people they became like animals fighting for food and turning each other in and betraying and others survived because of values, character, dignity, resiliency, it's called. Stress is a part of life. It's not a completely bad thing. You're going to be when you have to take an exam in school, you're going to face stress when you're going to ask a girl out for the first date or meet a potential partner for the first time. You're going to experience maybe stress. I hope you do. I certainly did. And this is not necessarily a bad thing. And learning how to deal with it, work with it, develops a quality called resiliency. And the more resilient you are, the more you'll thrive and manage in unstable situations. As father used to say, to become a person who is not determined or guided by the environment, but a person who masters the environment. That's all about resiliency, actually. So what makes one person more responsive and resilient than another? Some studies show that in the first few weeks of life, if a child has a supported, safe, bonded, regulated environment and his needs or her needs are being met, that child will develop a sense of security that will last throughout their life. In fact, if a kid experiences that level of security and bonding in the first weeks of life and then parents die and that child is in an orphanage and the rest of their life is chaos, they will be more stable and resilient than a kid in the opposite situation who had the first few weeks of life completely unstable, completely unsupported, unclear, signals changing, environment not safe, all kinds of stress and difficulty. And then that kid enters into a stable, supportive, loving family for the rest of their life they will have a more sensitive stress response, overactive, prone to anxiety or stress more than the first case. So let's consider for a moment then how does a child deal with a world that isn't always safe, that isn't always loving? How is an emotionally vulnerable and dependent child who doesn't have power? If I was to confront any one of your listeners In a lunchroom, and to be abusive and nasty and negative or hard with them, then they have many things they could do. They could stand up and tell me, hey, I'm not going to take this abuse and move to another table. Or they could shove it in my face and push back. Or if they didn't have the power to do either of those things, then there would be people at the lunch table who could support and protect them. But what about a child growing up facing a situation like that? Can they run away? How many children try? Can they stand up for themselves? Well, it's very difficult. So, what do children learn to do? And I'm going to call these coping strategies or defense mechanisms, as many people refer to them. How we adapt to a world that's not always safe and not always loving. For example, if we're not getting the attention or love or affirmation or support or encouragement that we are longing for, we might learn how to cultivate it by becoming a pleaser or a performer or a show off or becoming a victim and seeking sympathy or learning how to take care of everybody else. Or if we feel unloved and we're not getting attention or if the situation is dangerous or angry or hurtful, we might protect ourselves by using anger to push back or become sarcastic or a rebel or a loner or critical of everyone else around us or feeling superior. These are adaptive changes. These are not our authentic personality. These are not our authentic self. These are the adaptive changes we make to be safe, to be protected in a world that isn't always that way. But these adaptive changes, which we make with the noblest of intentions as immature growing children, they easily become maladaptive in the future and become the very barriers to healthy communication and connection and relationship. Our protective mechanisms become our prisons.
0: How's everybody doing out there? I mean, I listen to this stuff with a smile on my face. I love it so much. Just another breather. Kind of stretch your arms. Let that info sink in. And we're going to get into now the section about how this attachment trauma that we experience, how that influences us in our adult lives. Because it's one thing to hear about what happened to us way back when, but how is it manifesting in our day-to-day presently?
1: So strap on in and let's get into it. So how do our childhood attachment experiences affect our adult life and relationships? I want to first explain something called defensive detachment. Maybe some of you and some of your listeners might remember the time when you began to recognize that, gee, my parents aren't the ideal people that I thought they were growing up. And there was a disillusionment and a disconnect. And perhaps you began to feel like wanting to go far away. And the more your parents tried to get close and ask you what's going on and ask you to be with them and be close to them, the more you felt the need to push them away. This phenomenon is called defensive detachment. And it's quite common where it comes from, as it's understood is that we all have another important developmental need in early adolescence, and that is individuation, where I start to become my own person. Not just believing what my parents taught me to believe, but what do I believe? Not just following the values in my home, but personalizing and consider who I am as an individual separate from my parents. It's a very important stage. And it doesn't have to be angry or combative or difficult. It could unfold very naturally with love and appreciation toward my parents, but also striking out on my own and figuring out who I am. However, when that experience of detachment is excessively angry or rebellious, or there's a lot of dishonesty, or I just come home and slam the door and stay in my room and put my ear pods in and don't want to talk and don't want to spend any time with my family, there usually is some significant degree of attachment wounding underneath. I can't tell you how many parents came to me with the idea that my son, my daughter, they were so obedient, so respectful, so faithful. They were such good kids. And now look at them. They don't listen to me. They're rebellious. They don't come home when they say they're lying to me. They have a secret life. It must be their friends. It must be the environment. It must be the culture. Well, to be sure, our modern culture today does separate adolescents from adults in a way that traditional cultures never did. If you look at traditional societies, I mean, it's amazing. Traditional societies actually had manhood rights and rites of passage, becoming a man, becoming a woman. And for example, many tribes, the men of the tribe, the elders of the tribe would come to the boy's home at the appropriate age, enter the home and take him from the arms of his protective mother and bring him out into the wilderness to endure a trial all night in the forest, or hunt down a certain animal, or overcome some painful trial or challenge. And once the boy had done it, he was celebrated by the elders in the tribe, the men, and welcomed into the tribe of manhood. In traditional European society, apprenticeship was the way most young men learned their trade or craft by being guided into it by their father or another elder they were apprenticed to. So vertical intergenerational relationships were cultivated. Today, they're completely cut off. And kids are encouraged to have their own life. And there's a great separation from parents. That's tough for any parent to deal with, I recognize. But there are other reasons why a child becomes so rebellious or disconnected. And it's the feeling of, it hurts that I don't have a healthy and loving relationship with my parents, and I don't want to be hurt anymore. So I'm going to back away. I experienced this in my own life growing up, being disillusioned when I recognized my parents' struggles and being put in the middle of their fights and all the things that my parents put me through that I experienced. And I remember watching one of my own children go through this. I didn't understand the term, but I remember observing My child feeling, well, my dad is always in some other country. He's never here. He's always gone. And my mom doesn't understand me. It doesn't support me. And therefore, I don't need them. I don't want them. I don't need their God. I don't need their religion. And I'm going to live my own life. And that changed our relationship. There was a loss of trust. And the more I tried to get closer to my child, the more there was mistrust and blame and the feeling that all my motivations were selfish and wrong. So this is defensive detachment. Maybe some of you can identify with it. There's been a lot of work also to understand how our childhood emotional experiences affect the people we're attracted to in adulthood. The great book, Getting the Love You Want, it's decades old now, but it introduced, written by Harville Hendricks and Helen Hunt, therapists, researchers, and a couple described how our experience in childhood at home, our attachment experiences shaped who we are attracted to. For example, we might look for a similar experience to our childhood experience, something we're comfortable with. If I had an authoritarian father who had all the answers and I got used to pleasing him and relating to him, I might look for an authoritarian man. I might be naturally drawn to that. Or I might look for a relationship to heal some unresolved wound or unmet need that I never had in childhood. And that's one reason why, whether we meet somebody at a club and go out to date or whether we are introduced to them through our faith community, when we begin to consider a permanent relationship with someone, we can so easily attach huge emotional expectations on that relationship. This person is gonna heal my wounds and fulfill all my unmet needs, all my hopes, all my dreams. And when we realize that that person is also has feet of clay and limitations and struggles and different experiences, that's often when the struggle begins. We get outside the honeymoon period. So the work of Hendricks and Hunt, getting the love you want. And then later, they developed a communication system called Safe Communications that is so beautiful. It's one of my favorites. And that's because it not only teaches you to communicate with your partner by using responsible words and good language and not communicating when you're angry and things like that. But it also starts from the understanding that we enter marriage with our own wounds, our own needs, our own immaturities. And to communicate with my partner, acknowledging that it's not just you and what you are doing. This is how this impacts me. And this is the stuff I brought. So there's a tremendous humility and acknowledgement and rather than blaming and accusing and shooting arrows at the other i really love that and how easy it is when we grow up to use the coping mechanisms of childhood if we grew up in a family where dad was angry all the time i might learn how to use anger to control a situation to keep my kids from challenging me or to control my partner or becoming a victim or putting my emotional needs first or guilting my children or these kinds of things we're using our coping mechanisms and they're often unhealthy three important things that most people experience often without realizing it one is triggers okay what is a trigger if i was massaging you massaging your arm and all of a sudden i came across a place that was sensitive or underneath was wounded or hurt you would jump ow ow that's because there's a bruise there's a wound underneath When somebody says or does something, usually a partner, someone in your family, somebody you love, when somebody says or does something that just triggers you and you react emotionally in a way that's extreme, that means underneath, usually, there's some kind of emotional wound. And it's worth taking a look at. A second thing that's very common is something called transference, which is when we take the experience of an early primal relationship, often with a caregiver, a parent, And we bring that experience and project it onto a current day relationship, often with a spouse. I had this experience myself. I struggled so much feeling controlled, corrected, told what to do by my wife when I felt I already figured that out yesterday. I already know how to do it. Don't tell me this is my area. And I would just get so reactive, so triggered. And I remember going to a therapist, a friend, and wanting to work this out. And it took about 30 seconds into the session before my mom just popped up in my brain. In my visual, I could see my mom and recognize my perfectionist mom, who nothing I did was ever good enough that I still had some work to do to heal those wounds in order to be authentic with my spouse. A third thing that we often do is something called projection. Now, this is not projecting a whole relationship, but it's when my own inner feelings, often negative ones, guilt, self-criticism, when those get projected onto other people as if this is what they are feeling about me. Have you ever had the experience of saying something to a friend or loved one or family member innocently without any bad intention? And I'm not talking about sneaky attacks. But when you genuinely are trying to be loving or when it's matter of fact and you don't have any bad intention and the other person takes it through a filter or projects their own guilt and inner feeling onto your words as if you are guilting them or you are criticizing them when it has nothing to do with your intention. So these are common things that people do because of attachment wounding. And delving into this experience, not just conceptually or academically, but personally. Through therapy, through self-reflection, through the healthy self-observation and personal growth is super helpful. Now, what about these other more extreme areas, like emotional and mental health? Are things like anxiety, depression, overthinking, panic attacks, obsessive compulsive disorder, ADHD? Are these just brain-based? It's about an imbalanced brain chemistry that we inherited genetically from our ancestors. Absolutely not. The science does not show. For so many of these things, there's no individual gene that causes these things. And in fact, in many cases, we can see how environmental stressors, attachment experiences can exacerbate these things. For example, a child that grows up in a stressful environment, an overwhelming, noisy, difficult environment, an alcoholic parent, homeless a single parent, which is not to condemn single parents, but a stressed home because one parent is trying to do the job of two, right? And overextended and overstressed. When a child grows up in an unstable, emotionally up and down or stressful situation, that child has five times more likelihood of developing ADHD, which is the tendency to scatter myself, to disconnect from what's happening in front of me and to turn my attention elsewhere, then to become hyperactive and attention-seeking. And what it suggests is that this is a coping mechanism. In a highly stressed environment, I need to disconnect. If I can't escape it, I need to somehow protect myself or seek attention in other ways. This becomes a coping mechanism. And because it's at a time when the brain is developing, it becomes wired in as a go-to mechanism. Now, you can take Adderall or other medications for focus, but that's just dealing with symptoms because also studies show that when a child is returned to a stable, loving, supportive environment, these symptoms can ameliorate, can soften, can even ultimately disappear. And we can talk about depression, for example. Now, in my years of therapeutic practice, I have not encountered a single person who experienced depression. Unless it was situational depression, somebody they loved died. An overwhelmingly difficult situation was overwhelming to them and they became depressed. That's understandable. But for those who experience chronic depression, in almost every case, we could recognize that during their childhood years, they made the decision to depress their emotions. So, for example, you're not a good Catholic If you get angry or if you get emotional, you're not a good, blessed child. If you misbehave, or the feeling that good little boys don't get angry or express themselves in a crazy way, the message the child gets is that angry little boys don't get loved. Or if my anger will provoke a stronger reaction from a parent, anger, I'll show you anger. Or if for some reason I feel, if I'm told, don't be a baby, don't be like a little girl, you sissy don't cry. Why are you crying? If I'm ridiculed for being an emotional or sensitive person, or if I feel I have to suppress or depress my emotions, you can't just depress the bad ones. It ends up affecting the entire emotional world and it becomes colorless and gray. This is one aspect of depression that needs to be understood because it does have emotional roots and reasons. And by the way, every single client that I've worked with like that, and I just get them going on learning to express themselves, get them to stand up on a chair and scream out or go back to a situation where they repressed their emotions with a caregiver and have them say what they never were able to say and say it out loud, automatically their depression begins to change. And I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not qualified to diagnose. But this is my anecdotal experience in virtually every case. And what about anxiety? Well, anxiety is the feeling of being dangerous or unsafe, and it's often there's an emotional part of it that seems to be connected with our stress response. See, God gave us, or nature gave us, a survival mechanism that when we're in danger, our emotional brain triggers a reaction from the amygdala in the limbic level of our brain that, Has the heart pumped faster? Has blood going out to the extremities? Has oxygen going to make us stronger, faster, ready to run? Cortisol and adrenaline are pumped so that I can defend myself or run away or hide so that I can survive. But for mammals, that lasts for just a few minutes until the danger is gone. But human beings have the gift of consciousness, self-awareness. We can make thought more real than reality itself. Our amygdala doesn't know the difference if a lion is about to eat us from the outside or if we're remembering a traumatic, abusive experience from a previous marriage experience or my childhood. When that stress response is triggered, there's a feeling of being unsafe. Now, that's part of panic attacks. That's part of many different mental health maladies. But one part of anxiety seems to be that sense of being unsafe, often about the future, And then there's a mental aspect of anxiety as well, which often has to do with unhealthy beliefs about myself. So I start to feel danger, unsafe, worried about the future, and I try to find the meaning of that. And so I start to think about what, why, and it's because this is going to happen, that's going to happen. When the fact is 90% of the things we worry about happening never happen, and the 10% that do happen, Worrying about them beforehand wouldn't have made any difference anyway. So, anxiety about the future, depression, or regret about the past, these also have emotional roots and reasons. Almost any kind of mental health issue that involves overthinking, like obsessive compulsive disorder or certain food addictions, often are about. Having experienced a lack of control, this is just one aspect, okay? I'm not diagnosing, I'm not a medical doctor, I'm not qualified, but these are important things that each of us could explore to unearth, to uproot the emotional roots of the things we struggle with in our adult life. How about physical health? Already the medical community in the United States recognizes that 70% of disease is based in our emotions. I remember when I had cancer and I walked into Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City and I walked in and there's gentle music playing and everyone's saying, welcome, sir. Sit down right over there. How do you feel? Would you like here? Can I put the fan near you? Do you like the music? And I could feel they're trying to massage my emotions because we understand that emotions have a big factor. Stress, overwhelm anxiety, those kind of intense emotions depress the immune system. 90% of doctor visits in the United States in one study are to do with stress. And healthier emotions lower the blood pressure, are healthier for the heart. They limit weight gain and a whole host of other things. And traditional systems, the Chinese or Ayurvedic system, they actually developed a system to understand what emotions go to which body parts how anger affects the liver and not just the liver, but all the systems connected to the liver, how fear affects the kidneys and all the systems connected with the kidneys, et cetera. And one other area I want to touch on is addictive and compulsive behavior. One way that we learn how to deal with life when it's uncomfortable or when we feel you know, overwhelmed is to develop behaviors using pleasure To try and fill the part of us that's looking for happiness and self worth and fulfillment. Addictions and compulsive behavior. One thing we know is that usually underneath all compulsive behaviors is some kind of trauma or some kind of feeling of shame. Often it's from a shame based relationship with a caregiver, a belief system, or something like that. We're talking about attachment wounds, right? But typically, the experience of addictive and compulsive behaviors. Number one, it's the use of pleasure to take the place of happiness. And these are two very different things. Pleasure is temporary. Happiness is long lasting. Pleasure is visceral. It's in the body. Happiness is in the soul, in the spirit. It's ethereal. Pleasure is about me, even if I'm experiencing it with a whole bunch of other people. It's about my fulfillment. Whereas happiness is in the experience of bonding, connecting, sharing feeling things with others. There's a total difference between when you have sex with yourself, for example, and when you're bonded, trusting, open, and sincere, and naked emotionally as well as physically with another person in an intimate sexual relationship. It's a completely different experience. Now, another thing about using pleasure is it's related with dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter in the brain that's super important. And it's not just about pleasure. Dopamine is about reward. And if you didn't have a reward system in your brain within you, you wouldn't be motivated to get out of bed in the morning. Our ancestors wouldn't have crossed the Atlantic to land in a new world or endured slavery and suffering in order to find their way and make their life and deal with difficulty or cross the plains and go through the mountains or climb a mountain, reach a goal and feel great. That's what dopamine does. But when you're involved in a compulsive behavior, you're just pushing that pleasure button over and over again. Feel good, feel good, feel good, feel good. And you haven't done anything for it. You haven't earned it. And so it impacts your brain chemistry. It affects you. Another thing about compulsive behaviors is they always need to escalate. Why is it that people that started to smoke to get the same rush of nicotine, they had to smoke a little bit more each time? Why is it that relationship with porn escalates? We start with something soft and simple. Then it just gets wilder, crazier, more extreme, more bizarre, more shameful to us. We don't want anybody to see it. Then pretty soon we start thinking about maybe going online and maybe lurking in a chat room and just watching people. And then we want to communicate with somebody. But then when they start to talk to us, we shut down the computer and run away. And believe me, I've talked to hundreds of clients, so I know this experience well. And I can't say that I haven't struggled with pleasure-based experiences in my own life, of course. And then pretty soon, we actually set up a meeting with that person. And the first time we do it, we don't show up. But then we do show up. And all of a sudden, the behavior is escalating and escalating and escalating. The reason is because dopamine excites the neuroreceptors that it connects with. And they get overexcited, and they don't want to be overwhelmed or even die. So each time, withdraw and make themselves less available. So you need more of the experience or substance in order to get the same result. And that's why compulsive behaviors escalate and escalate. Now, what's the number one thing we do compulsively? We relate with compulsively. It's food. We eat our feelings. We comfort ourselves or we can't eat when we're upset. It's our relationship with food that becomes compulsive, first of all. The second most common is sex, because we're all walking around with this little pleasure entertainment system in between our legs. And if we don't have our emotional needs met or don't know how to bond and connect, or if we've isolated or feel alone or whatever, then we can easily try and comfort wounds or meet unmet needs through pleasure. So sex is number two. And substances, alcohol, drugs, things like that are ways of comforting, avoiding pain or replacing happiness with pleasure. But it's not just substances, it's also behaviors. We can get addicted to the internet. We can get addicted to computer games. We can get addicted to social media and get a distorted perception of myself and the world. And you're actually getting a rush of pleasure when you spend the first hour or two of your day with your face in your Twitter account or your Facebook account. Then you're just scrolling, scrolling, or one TikTok after another, after another, we're getting a little brain feast there that makes it hard to turn off. And I love the work of some researchers and therapists like Jay Stringer, who wrote the book Unwanted. And Unwanted demonstrates how in his life and in his clients' lives, all of their compulsive sexual experiences in adulthood were just repeating the emotional patterns of childhood relationships, or trying to resolve a childhood wound. And that was the case. And I have come across that kind of situation myself. Virtually all of my sexual proclivities, which I won't talk about here, have to do with my mother wound and my longing to be loved by mom. I often have said, everybody thinks that guys are wolves and we all have a hard-on, quote-unquote, but it's often a heart-on, an unmet emotional need, and we sexualize it. I can think of two of my clients, two interesting experiences. Some of you may recognize these, and they've both been very public about these things. One of them grew up disconnected from his emotionally withdrawn dad and also had a lot of shame-based experiences in childhood. One of those was when siblings lured him to the basement, and as a joke, they pulled down his pants, wrapped him up in a diaper, locked him in a closet. He cried in the closet, and when One of his siblings let him out. He ran up to his room, wept for two hours, squelched his anger and his hurt, came down to dinner and never talked about it again until he was in therapy with me. And he swore that there was no anger remaining. He swore, but all those things came out. And then we traced when he struggled with male authority, he would shame them in his head by picturing them in white underwear. Or then if somebody bullied him, He would picture them in white underwear to shame them, to get power back over them. And all of a sudden, he reached puberty, and it became erotic to him. And so he got into that kind of porn and into all the things beyond that, the type of sex with guys in underwear and all these kinds of things. When he came to see me, he had zero attraction to women, and he only had all of these obsessive and compulsive thoughts and feelings. A few months later, after working through all these things, allowing the feelings to come up and come out, working through them, redoing the experiences and creating internal clarity and boundaries, et cetera, he then came out with zero attraction to any of those things and with a healthy feeling toward women. And he's now married, blessed as a child, and is extremely happy and super attracted to his gorgeous wife, from what he tells me. Actually, that's just one. I have multiple other experiences. How someone, another young guy, dealt with an overwhelmingly emotionally dominating mother and he felt so controlled and frustrated. As a child, he's watching a Disney cartoon where the princess is taken captive and it excites him that she's taken under the control of some men. And pretty soon when he discovers porn, he's watching that kind of porn, bondage porn, where women are restricted and controlled, etc. And he wires that into his system through years of porn and then acting out to the porn. And again, when through therapy, working through those feelings, recognizing them, resolving things with his mother in multiple different ways, he's now happily married, happily blessed, and has no conflict within him about being authentic and loving toward his wife. These are just a few examples.
0: So that's it for this first part. It gets even juicier, okay? Next week, we're going to get into the second half of this conversation, which is much more about what do you do with all of this? How do you start to repair this damage so that you can break these cycles in your life and in our society? This is the work of restoration. And it's really important to understand the theology. And it's also really, really important to get your hands dirty in the hard work of confronting yourself mentally. What are the concepts that you have that are not serving you? emotionally what's the baggage that you are still processing so that you can deal with it and come through on the other side a healed person spiritually how do you get your spirits to continue this work even though our bodies just want us to be lazy so please come back this stuff is life-changing information so have a great week everybody Everybody, Andrew Love here and I just wanted to let you know that we have completely revamped our offering known as the Ascend program. Now if you've been with us for a while you know that the Ascend program has been our flagship porn recovery program for years and we've added a lot of content we've tweaked things here and there but recently we've completely done an overhaul in terms of our approach to recovery and here's why you see, originally we tried to appeal to everybody and we just let everybody come in. Anybody who said that they wanted to tackle porn, we just let them join. And was a very low barrier of entry. But what we found was that a lot of people who thought they were ready to tackle their porn addiction or who kind of wanted to, they didn't always show up in the best way and they in many cases brought the group dynamic down and so what we've done is we've made the barrier of entry a little higher and in turn we've made our offering much more powerful let me explain. So when you sign up now, there is a small fee for everybody to sign up, but you get that money back once you finish that quarter. It's in kind of an escrow as a challenge for you to take your time more seriously because if you put money into something and you're only going to get it back out if you really try, if you really attend your classes, if you really do all the work, then guess what? Your motivation to do that work is much higher. So that's the first thing. Second thing is we are, of course, offering our weekly call groups as a part of the Ascend program. So you'll have your group that you meet with every single week, and that's super important. But in addition to that, you're going to get daily accountability. You'll be able to message with somebody every single day in order to stay on track with your North Star goal. And more than that, every quarter, you get two one-on-one calls with a high noon staff. That is a one-on-one call where we do a deep dive into where you're at and where you're going. And we help you to diagnose precisely what actions will be most useful for your time, for your energy, so that you can get the biggest results for your energy spent. So we are doing our best here at Island to make sure that you grow the most in the shortest amount of time, It's all a part of our new roadmap that we've created. Anyway, we've been doing this for a while, but we're always getting better and better. And this quarter, the first quarter in 2023 is going to be monumental. So please sign up for this Ascend program. Take it super seriously and just watch what happens. Watch how your life
1: transforms in a short period of time.